very good morning to all of you. I feel that we cannot begin the, the next segment without going to God in prayer. Especially if we say that our lives are filled with thankfulness. Let us go to God in prayer. God, are our hearts really filled with thankfulness? Or is it only lip service? God, we want to come before you this morning, even before we proceed to the next segment, the reading and studying of your word. We ask, Father, that you help us to recall how in your grace and mercy you have plucked us up from darkness into your wonderful light. And our lives has been transformed ever since. So God, fill us with thankfulness even as we thank you for the opportunity to read, to study your word. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that you will guide us and be our teacher. For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> we are creatures of habit. Breakfast, newspaper, AM Singapore. For those who prefer the Chinese version, Facebook, so on. Somewhere in between, we also squeeze in several minutes for quiet time and prayer before we dash out of our home to catch the train, the bus, taxi, or to drive off to work, fetching the kids to school. For those who are students, you have a set routine as well, only in different forms. We are all conditioned to be creatures of habit. We have a set routine in our lives because it brings order. It brings order to our lives. It allows us to have control of our lives. It helps us develop a disciplined life. The study this morning reveals the first big action seen after Pentecost. And Luke shows us a specific example of two individual apostles, Peter and John, manifesting in their lives some of the general features of apostolic life while going through life in a sort of routine way. One of the pious things by way of routine that the Jews do is to go to the temple to pray. That is their routine. Now we shouldn't suppose that Peter and John were the only examples Luke selects this story as a typical example of the general pattern of what life was like in those days after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now let us recall. Let's recall what happens concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples that they are to become his witnesses. They are to become Jesus' witnesses and they are to carry out the work of witnessing, telling others that Jesus, the Messiah or Deliverer, had come to redeem the people from the dominion of darkness in the hands of Satan, who deceived Adam and Eve to rebel against God, thereby bringing the whole of humanity into judgment. But the scope of witnessing is, is huge. The scope of witnessing for Jesus spans the geographical areas of Jerusalem itself, Judea, Samaria, and the north, until the furthest reach of the world. Now, this is an unachievable goal by human standards, if not for Jesus' promise that the disciples will receive power. 
The disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit descended upon their life, which we saw in the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. On that day, 3,000 people repented and were saved. Such is the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon the believers. And so this morning, we continue the study in the book of Acts as we look at chapter 3. Witnessing as your way of life. You have your bulletin, you can track along with me. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John's visit to the temple in verse 1 is part of a standard routine, as I mentioned. A discipline of observing regular times for prayer. But what happens on this particular afternoon at 3 o'clock? That is the ninth hour, Jewish time. Jewish time begins at 6 o'clock at daybreak. What happens on that day is anything but regular. The crippled man in verse 2 is also on his regular route, being carried as he was every day since birth, according to the text, to a profitable spot for begging. Ready to call upon the generosity of the worshippers on their way into the temple. Two paths intersect in an apparently chance encounter and two sets of lives are changed forever. Luke's whole tone in this story conveys a sense of breathless awe. You will read about this later in verse 10. Conveys a sense of breathless awe and we see the first clear demonstration that the apostles now, the apostles, since the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the apostles have the same miraculous healing power that Jesus had. Peter looked at the crippled beggar and then he gets the man to look him in the eye, verse 4. When you tell that to someone, look at me. Someone who is expecting to receive something from you, the, the other person will probably lift up his eyes and not only that, lift up his eyes with great anticipation, he will, he will lift up his hands expectantly towards you. Outstretched hands when you say, look at me. I'm going to give you something, isn't it? But the next sentence coming out of Peter's lips, dash all hope for the lame beggar. Peter said, I have no silver, and go, what I do have, I give to you. How would the beggar respond? It is okay if you do not have any money to spare me. I don't need anything else. Besides silver and gold, what else? Tell me what else is there that can help me in my situation. I was born like this. And my only hope to survive is to depend on the mercy of people going in and out of the temple. For those who are still wondering, where do you get this born... Uh, Crippled, Acts chapter 4, the, the succeeding chapter which I'll preach on in time to come. Besides silver and gold, what else is there that can help me? If Peter and John cannot help, it's okay. There is bound to be someone who else who can help. But Peter says, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give to you. Now think about it. Is Peter and John trying to be sarcastic? Already they are not very helpful in the situation. Don't they know the difference between felt needs and real needs? 
Surely for a crippled beggar, the real need is financial above all others. If you don't have money, move on. It's okay. The beggar needs money. Or is there more? A missionary asked for support during the annual missionary conference, but your budget simply cannot tolerate another $5 or $10 a month. What can we give? Can we pray? Can we write to encourage them? Can we invite this missionary during next year's conference to stay with us, have a meal with us? God never asks us to give what we don't have. He expects us to give to those in need from what He has given us and always to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John have only one thing to offer and only in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, verse 12. In Jewish thought, a name does not just identify or distinguish a person. For example, my name is, um, my surname is Lee, Mr. Lee, right? So and you may be called Mr. Tan, Mr. Wong, Miss Lee, Miss Wong, so on and so forth. Right? In Jewish thought, a name does not just identify or distinguish one person for another. It expresses the very nature of the person. Hence, the power of the person is present and available in the name of the person. Peter does not just call upon Jesus Christ but pronounces upon the crippled beggar the name of Jesus releasing the power of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You may, you may look at me differently. I was a very naughty boy when I was young. I used to have a lot of fights. And uh, boys' school, by the way, when you fight... Uh, and, and unfortunately, I lost. I lost most of the time. Okay, and so what happened when when I when I lost the fight? I called my father. Bruce Lee, your father is it? My father is not Bruce Lee. But my father's choice of weapon for inflicting damage is the feather duster. Inflict on me when I got trouble. In fact, I call upon the name of my father, Mr. Lee. In Jewish thought, the name not only distinguishes one man for another, but the power behind the name. Now, please note that the apostles don't wield any miraculous power in their own right, only as instruments of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. Does not mention that the first time they have the same miraculous power of healing as their Lord and Saviour. No, they don't wield any kind of miraculous power in their own right, only as instruments of Jesus Christ. So the beggar doesn't get what he wanted, but he does get something infinitely better. The word Luke uses for arms in, at the end of verse 3, this is my the, the ESV, right, arms. It's the standard Jewish term for mercy, not silver and gold. Mercy, pity, compassion. In the New Testament, it's an act of kindness. Now, this turns out to be truer than anyone expected because Peter gives the man a hand to raise him up. Verse 7, the same word that the New Testament uses for resurrection or to raise from the dead. The result is a new life, causing through the feet and ankles, wobbly from disuse, and this will be a dramatic and visible sign of the effects of an encounter with the living God. Here is a man who was born crippled. And now, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. 
The result is a new life, coursing through the veins and blood vessels in his feet and ankles, causing him to rise. This is a dramatic and visible sign. Now, I want to talk about contrast here. Right? There are two contrasts I want to draw attention to. Think about this. Number one, the contrast between what the beggar expected and what he got. What the beggar expected and what he got. A heresy occurs in some churches today, and this heresy identifies God as blessing us with money, possession, pay, prestige, power, and other worldly measurements, often called the prosperity gospel. It completely denies the message of the New Testament, for the Bible identifies Christians as pilgrims, strangers, some versions use aliens. Can you imagine that? On earth. The Bible never identifies money or status as a sign of God's blessing, 2 Corinthians 6. Trouble or struggles in our life does not point to an absence of God's blessing upon us or upon our families. So contrast this, what the beggar expected and what he got. Now contrast again between the physical miracle and the spiritual miracle. Why physical why, uh, and spiritual? Verse 16 tells us that the crippled beggar was actually healed through faith in Jesus' name. Now, so there is a physical miracle as well as a spiritual miracle. Both occurred in the same man and at the same time. Now, which was greater? Which was greater? To the immediate crowd, to the 21st century modern Singapore, surely the jumping and walking. But to the angels that day, the recognition that another person will spend eternity in heaven, that is greater. So that's physical and spiritual healing. Let us remember that spiritual miracles are no less miraculous and certainly no less important than physical miracles. So two miracles happened to the beggar. He received physical and spiritual healing. I prefer to call restoration later in your notes. Something that silver and gold cannot provide. Or at best, if silver and gold can provide, it's only temporary. Then this is the first point in our study. Let's continue to verse 9. The healing of the crippled beggar is visible for all to see. The healing of the crippled beggar is visible. Everyone saw that. And it has a dramatic effect on the onlookers, verse 9 and 10. They are stunned and amazed. Now this is the correct and expected reaction to seeing something miraculous. A healing that defies human explanation and in this place, sense of awe and wonder. But this dramatic effect is never an end in itself. Awe and wonder have to be channeled. Awe and wonder have to be channeled and the sensational. The sensational has to be put into its theological framework. So the swirling crowd, the busy crowd, comes to a halt around the centre where the once crippled man is holding on desperately, verse 11, holding on desperately to the only two people who can help make sense of the bewilderment and confusion of his new life. Silver and gold, but you give me life. This gives Peter his second opportunity for an unscripted sermon. The first one, when Peter spoke, an unscripted sermon was in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So this opportunity in the healing allowed Peter his second opportunity for an unscripted sermon. Peter's first priority is to direct their focused attention. Why are you staring at us? 
Peter directs their attention to his proper goal. The miracle was not due to some special power or piety on our part, Peter says. It was the action of God himself, the God of the Bible, the God of our shared heritage and history, verse 13. And Peter quotes Exodus 3, verse 6. And the familiar refrain reminds his audience that the God that they believe in is a God who acts in history, who comes down to save his people. Putting God at the beginning of the sentence is essential to elicit the familiarity of Moses' teaching, but the sequence is unexpected. Peter tells them that it is God's power that healed the lame man. That's the underlying message. But the power, the power of healing is channeled through not Peter and John. The power is channeled through God's servant, Jesus Christ. And Peter uses five descriptions. We call this the Messianic description. He uses five different names or titles for the Lord. Verse 13, servant. Holy and righteous, verse 14. The author of life, 15. Christ, verse 20. And the prophet, verse 22. Verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, God's name, would trigger in all pious Jews a connection within the sacred, never pronounced personal name of God and His divine presence and power. Now Peter applies that most sacred name to Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine, imagine the five messianic description. Imagine that, that the pastor has announced on a certain Sunday that next week he will preach on the name of Jesus. The congregation arrives, the title is printed in the bulletin, but the pastor becomes seriously ill and cannot come to church. After the worship, after the singing, after the tithes and offering, and then the scripture reading, a leader of the church comes to you and says, the leadership has decided. You should speak in the pastor's absence. We want you to deal with the same theme he announced, the name of Jesus. And then he personally conducts you to the pulpit microphone. What will you say? Most of us would mumble some apologetic line about being unprepared and surprised. So was Peter in a similar situation, isn't it? But Peter spontaneously offered this magnificent portrayal of the power and person of Christ residing in this name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, the essential message of the apostles throughout the book of Acts is that all the miracles they perform are done only in the name of Jesus and to testify to the saving power of faith in Jesus' name. All the miracles done in the book of Acts are done only in the name of Jesus Christ and testify to the saving power. Saving power, not just power. Saving power of faith in His name. And so effective and real Christian ministry proclaims faith in the name of Jesus. In all the ministry that we have in this church, we proclaim faith in the name of Jesus. Luke uses this phrase, name of Jesus, 33 times in the book of Acts. And here we have the key verse to the question raised in verse 12. How was this man healed? How is it all this possible? The answer, because of Jesus' name and the faith that comes to Jesus. The beggar need not understand the resurrection. He need not understand the ascension or any other Christian theology. The beggar's response to Peter's command and his outstretched hand, rise up and walk, demonstrated the beggar's faith Simple faith, yet saving faith. Rise up and walk. Now, this faith cannot be manufactured. 
we cannot manufacture it in ourselves. Only God can give it to us. We can pray, obviously, but only God can place it in our hearts. And so that is the first point in our study. If you follow along with me with the notes, God turns your routine into His divine encounter. There's physical restoration, there's spiritual restoration. I prefer the word restoration because we were created perfect, but because we fell. And so it's not healing, it's restore. To what it should be one day when we see God in heaven. God turns your routines into His divine encounters. God brings a believer into the path of another person. And this is not a random act or luck. God superintends the lives of you and I. And God has specific interest in humanity because we are His crowning creation. Now therefore, what is God interested in and cares so much for you and I? Let's read on. The servant Jesus has to suffer before he can be glorified. Isaiah 52. The terrifying part of Peter's message is that you, those listeners at the time, the Jews, the crowd that were caught up in the collective madness that has seized the city only weeks before on Good Friday, they had rejected God's holy and righteous servant and worse, they had killed him. Verse 14. Peter's words are painfully ironic. The prince of life, Jesus, the one whose very name is an agent of physical healing, verse 6, in the early part, right? Is the very one you kill, he says in verse 15. It's a shocking indictment. But the sermon doesn't end there. Peter didn't end there. Now, telling people that they are sinners is not the whole gospel. Facing up to what we do to God when He comes among us is not the end of the story by any means. In fact, it's only the beginning. So you are guilty, but is that all? There are several ways, of course, in which we can evade the indictment, isn't it? We didn't know. It's always a good one. We didn't know. Another good one you have all heard before is we are only obeying orders. Now, the people of Jerusalem acted in ignorance, huh? Peter says in verse 17, as did their rulers. Peter will confront the ruling authorities later in this episode, first, uh, chapter 4 onwards. But here he's very directly addressing the crowd, the people, the onlookers who were there. Peter is quite happy to accept both of their excuses. Everything that happened to Jesus, Peter says, was part of God's plan. Something already revealed by the prophets, verse 18. Interestingly, however, none of this, none of this makes the slightest difference to the question of responsibility. Peter says, you did it. You were there. It is easy to claim that we were just caught up in the action of the crowd or to blame peer pressure or society or even our culture or a particular set of social conditioning. But that doesn't absolve us or excuse us as individuals from taking personal responsibility for our action. Social psychology may be able to tell us what is the connection between our behaviour and our conditioning. That can be explained away by social psychology. But as every teacher knows, we can't change without accepting responsibility for who we are. We must be willing to accept responsibility before we can change. What next? This might seem unfair. This might seem unfair if Peter is administering punishment. But in fact, he's much more interested in effecting a positive change. What the people need to do, what people need to do is to repent. Repent. 
Literally, to repent means a change of mind or heart. And turn to God. A complete change of direction. Change of mind and heart. Change of direction to God. The future, in other words, is more important than the past. The preaching of the gospel can never stop at inducing guilt. Focusing on past feelings. It's all about opening ourselves to God's future. Think about this. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Repentance, in verse 19, is literally a change of mind or heart. How often we have heard that repentance means being sorry for our sin, and often that posture appropriately accompanies genuine repentance. Yes, we feel sorry. Right? So we repent, that's why we feel sorry. But the, word, the Greek word metanoia really refers to a change of mind. Sometimes it describes turning around and walking in a different direction. The Jews in Peter's audience had rejected and crucified the Messiah. Now they need to accept Him. They have to change their mind. Accept Him as the Savior of Israel. They have to turn to God. Change your mind. Turn to God. The Bible often links repentance with faith because saving faith includes genuine repentance. The unbeliever changes to a believer. A complete direct difference of direction and thought. Repentance opens up the way to wiping up our sins. Verse 19. And the world-changing results are not only individual, but communal. Repentance will unleash showers of blessing, verse 20, and even only enough, the return of Christ in verse 21. Pentecost is simply a foretaste of the real restoration stored up in heaven when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. But there is also a note of warning. The free offer has to be accepted in verse 23. God interrupted your routine with this divine encounter in order to, in order to seek your response to His divine invitation, which is the second point in our study. God interrupted your routine provides a divine encounter. Why? God seeks your response. To what? To His divine invitation. Change of heart and mind. Change of direction. To God. God's divine encounter reveals His divine invitation and God wants you to respond. The narrative should have ended there and could have. But it will not be complete without the third and final point in our study. And let's read on. What Peter is offering is nothing more or less than an invitation to take possession of your whole inheritance. It's all there for you. This is what all of God's promises are about. It's what all the prophets are saying, verse 24, including Moses himself, verses 22, 23. In fact, it goes right back to Abraham, verse 25. Offspring refers to Christ the Messiah. What is happening in the narrative, heralding the church age, is part of the original covenant. God's promise of blessing to all the families of the earth, Genesis 12. But remember, you have the choice of accepting it or rejecting it, verse 26. The church age, the days in which you and I now live, were foretold by the prophets of old. First, the gospel came to the Jews as a blessing, for God has chosen the nation of Israel to give the world the Messiah and the message. God has chosen the Israelite, Israelite Davidic line to give the word the Messiah and the message. 
Now, true, this sermon represented the gospel for Jews at a particular point in history, but it was a gospel none, no less. Everything good in this world comes because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, including the ascension of course. God's sovereign grace makes possible anything of worth or pleasure in our lives. It's God's sovereign grace that makes anything that is of worth in terms of pleasure in our lives. But we corrupt. We corrupt this sovereign grace. We corrupt His gifts. We scorn His grace. We reject His goodness. But you know what? God still sent Jesus to bless us continually. Remember we are doing the study on Beatitudes? This is the third point for our study today. Through the covenant, we become heirs of Christ. And through Christ, we can turn away from sin. Today's sermon begins with a seemingly innocent, a chance encounter between the disciples of Jesus with an unnamed stranger who was lame by birth. Both parties were going about their lives in a business-as-usual routine, B-A-U. What they would normally do, but unknown to them, God intervened. God intervened and presented a divine appointment for Peter, John, and the unnamed cripple to experience the power and presence of Jesus Christ. When we come to chapter 4, in the continuing narrative, of this miraculous, miraculous healing, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it leads to the conversion of 5,000. Now, fervent Jews in Jesus' time met at the temple three times for prayer. During the morning sacrifice at 9 o'clock, during the afternoon sacrifice at 12 noon, and at sunset at 3. In this chapter, Peter and John attended the temple at the 9 hour, the 3 o'clock. Sacrifice time. Were they looking for ministry opportunities? We don't know for certain. But one thing that's for sure, they were met with a challenge from God to take their faith seriously. And what follows, what follows in this account is the first public healing, first public healing miracle described in the book of Acts. And one of the most eloquent sermons concerning the name and power of Jesus found anywhere else in the Bible delivered spontaneously. Peter and John had recently been involved in a great evangelistic effort in which 3,000 people were saved, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Now God tells them at this point, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, this one lost ship is just as important to God as the thousands to whom they preach at Pentecost. The crippled beggar formed a pitiful sight Smelly, dirty, our shape. The cripple form a pitiful sight, and at first glance, this reflected only the common curse, the common curse of sin in this world, about which Peter and John and you and I could do nothing about. They were wrong. God's grace and power are neither governed by nor limited to any set of circumstances. God worked through the apostles' lives to reach out to an unnamed soul that day. All of us were like the beggar who received God's grace and mercy through the finished work of Christ on the cross. God intervened and presented a 
divine appointment for Peter, John, and the unnamed cripple to experience the power and presence of Jesus. The lesson for us is the same. God works through us to reach out to unnamed souls. Ask God to help us to be sensitive and to be aware of His leading. Remember the power and presence in the name of Christ. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Indeed, without the power of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit, our lives may be disciplined, but it will not be a life that pleases you or a life that can be used as your witness. We look forward to the coming week for any opportunity which may arise in which we can live out our lives as witnesses for our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.